Welcome to the Cell Intel podcast, where we explore how single cell and spatial analysis methods are being adopted and are accelerating discoveries in life science research. We're really excited to be bringing this podcast to you. In this inaugural episode, Talking About a Resolution Part 1, we want to introduce ourselves and give you a sense of what this podcast will be about. My name is Melissa Randall. I'm here with Neil Weingarten. Hi, Neil. Hi, Melissa. Our main goals for this episode are really just to introduce ourselves and tell you about what this podcast is going to be focusing on moving forward. We're both coming to you from 10x perspective here, but we're going to be talking a lot about these new technologies that are accessible to everyone for looking at multi-omics. Neil, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into this field? Absolutely. So I've since my graduate work, I've been interested in gene expression regulation. I spent a lot of time just studying the heat shock response. And when I moved on to my first career, it really was around doing genomics work. I was hired to start developing a system, a robot really, for making microarrays and studying gene expression at a kind of a global scale. And it just continued from there. I was working at a core here in Toronto at the Princess Margaret Hospital, where we were providing services for microarrays and then next generation sequencing and eventually onto single cell. And in fact, we started doing single cell work in the genomics core there back in 2002 as a collaboration with Dr. Norman Iskov. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, I come from a relatively similar background. So when I was in graduate school, I was in a lab focused on new technology development for next generation sequencing. And we functioned as the genomics core prior to there actually being a genomics core at my university. So I got looped into a lot of different products, a lot of different processes and projects. It's been a whirlwind since then. I can tell you that technology is advancing very rapidly. Can you tell us about maybe one of the first first projects that you worked on around omics in general, or maybe single cell? Actually, it's funny. When I interviewed at 10X, I, I had a bit of a funny story about how I was doing single cell genomics before I even really realized that I was doing it. So some of my first work was actually in Drosophila, and I was doing polytene chromosome spreads. And one of the great things there was that you would look at these puffs in the polytene chromosomes, and that would indicate where there was transcription occurring. And my graduate supervisor, Dr. Tim Westwood at the University of Toronto, and I worked out a, a way where we could actually incorporate BRDU to actually look at where active transcription was happening. And Tim was quite an expert at being able to actually look at the banding pattern and figure out what genes were there. And because those polyteen chromosomes are all within a single cell, we were actually looking at genome-wide transcription in a single cell, but we never really thought of it that way. We were just looking at these expression patterns. So that was interesting. And then when I moved to the core at the Princess Margaret Hospital, we were, again, we were making microarrays to look at transcription across the entire transcriptome for yeast and human and mouse. And one of the first forays into doing single cell omics was, again, when Dr. Iskov came to us, he had a unique method for being able to amplify up material from a single cell. And so we would amplify up that material and put it onto a microarray and be able to actually look at a single cell on a microarray. The problem is microarrays were quite expensive. So the cost per cell was relatively prohibitive. So there were only a few applications where it made sense. And, and some of the initial 
experiments that we were doing actually revolved around uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization, where we could actually biopsy a, a single cell, a blastomere, and profile it onto a microarray and try to understand what's happening there. So it was really quite interesting, but it wasn't until we started getting into some of the better technologies like 10X where we could do this at scale and actually look at thousands of cells at a time because 500 to to $1,000 per cell was not going to cut it. So <laughs> I can't imagine the analysis that would go into looking at all of those individual cells without having these nice pipelines to really integrate your data. Yeah, exactly. We were only looking at one or two cells at a time and treating them as unique samples. And how about yourself? What was some of your early omics work? Oh my goodness. I, I have a funny story around this. So new technology development for sequencing, of course, being our focus, uh, a grad student in my lab came up with an idea for a project where we were going to do a genome-wide screen for enhancer elements, so regulatory sequences impacting gene expression in response to stress. And we were looking at Drosophila as well, and we created like a reporter library. So we fragmented the entire Drosophila genome. We put one chunk of the gene upstream of a minimal promoter driving expression of a barcode. And then by expression of those barcodes, we could determine if there were regulatory sequences in the fragment of the genome that were associated with that barcode. Now, the issue was that in order to actually transfect such a reporter library, you needed such a massive amount of the library itself. We're talking micrograms of these sequences. And in order to generate sufficient material for transcription, Infection, that meant a ton of amplification. You're having base point errors in that process and you're having template switching happening and things like that. So it really confounded our data analysis in the end. And looking back, I'm this is about five years ago I was doing this work and I did spend years working on trying to get this assay to work. Nowadays, I probably could have done that experiment over the course of one month, completely feasible to be able to accomplish that with the multiome assay, which simultaneously generates single cell attack data and single cell gene expression data from the exact same cells. And not only would it have been easy to be able to conduct this project, but I would have gotten the added element of seeing gene expression from the exact same cells where you have functionality of those different sequences within the genome. So I'm sure that everybody gets to a point in their career where they're really blown away by how technology has progressed. I didn't expect it to be over the course of five years. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. I've you know heard stories too, even when I was in graduate school, of people talking about, oh, back when that person did their PhD, all they had to do was identify that a gene was involved in cancer or something like that. And they didn't even have to characterize it. If they found it and sequenced it, that was it. And now that's not even in the supplementary data of a paper anymore. And, and just, the technologies have become so much more rich and informative. It really is incredible. And, and you're right. I could have done my entire graduate career in a week and a half with some of the current technologies that we have now. And it really is amazing. So... Well, I'm really excited to see what the future is going to bring and also all of the wonderful research that people are going to be able to do with these new and emerging technologies. I can't wait to see what people do with them. Now, 
around this podcast a little bit more, we really want to be reaching people who are curious about where the field is going in higher resolution biology. And if you're too busy to watch hours of webinars to hear about it all, we hope that this will be a good supplementary material for you, especially as everybody's starting to get back to their old ways. So we expect to be spending hopefully less time in front of a computer and less time in front of Zoom. So feel free to multitask while you guys listen to this podcast. We also want researchers to be able to envision the steps to adopting these single cell and spatial analysis technologies and really think about the value that the data will add to their research and the new paths revealed by their discoveries. So it's really pushing forward the next chapter in biology research around these emerging technologies. Now, to get a little bit into some of the technologies that we're going to be talking about over the course of this podcast series, we can start to break down some of the different assays that we have access to at this time. And I'll go ahead and throw things into Neil's court here, starting off with single cell RNA-seq. Do you want to give us some examples of how this technology works and what it might be used for? Yeah, absolutely. Really, this was the initial foray into single cell genomics and is still really the mainstay of a lot of these applications. And really, the basic premise is that we take a complex tissue and we disperse that into single cells so that they're each kind of individualized and no longer um, sitting there in the actual tissue itself. And then we capture each of those cells separately into a discrete reaction chamber. And in our case, the way that we do this is by actually capturing a single cell into an aqueous droplet. And we make many thousands, basically a hundred thousand of these droplets inside of an oil emulsion. And because oil and water don't mix, each of these droplets become a discrete reaction chamber. And using a microfluidics approach, we can actually ensure that every one of those droplets also gets one of our 10x barcoded gel beads. And these gel beads act as a delivery tool for an oligo that's going to tag the products of each of the individual cells. So every bead will be unique and it can identify each individual cell. And so some of the droplets, we use something called Poisson distribution. So only a fraction of the droplets that we make will also get a cell inside of them. And so those droplets that get a cell, the cell by lice, the RNA will be released, the mRNA will be captured by the oligos from the bead and reverse transcribed. And during that reverse transcription, we're adding in the barcode. And now from that point on, everything's been tagged with information about the cell of origin. And so we can actually break these emulsions apart. We can create sequencing libraries just like in bulk RNA sequencing from that, this point on. And when we sequence them, the software will be able to take one of the reads from the sequencer, which will identify which cell it came from, and then the other read to figure out which gene it was that was being transcribed. And so that's the general basis of how this all works. And it allows us to look at all of the genes in an unbiased way, but also track them back to their cell of origin. And so now what we see is that there are subtypes of cells that have specific expression patterns that are different from the rest of the tissue. And so rather than you know taking a tissue and homogenizing it, taking all of the RNA and just getting an average signal, we now actually get the unique signature of each of these cells. And we can see that there are some rare cell types that are actually were being lost when we were doing this kind of bulk approach. And the classic example, when I first started doing this, 
a lot of this was driven back in Toronto by the amazing stem cell researchers there. And for those of you who know about stem cells, stem cells are very rare. They might be one in a million of all of the cells that are actually present. And trying to find that cell in the mass of a larger tissue is going to be next to impossible. And even though they could start to purify these cells out, they still couldn't actually see those signatures. And so single cell approaches allow us to find those rare populations of cells and understand them and even find heterogeneity amongst things that we already thought were relatively homogeneous. We're finding out that's not really the case. And a lot of this is, has been driven by that initially, but now for developmental processes, for understanding cancer and disease and neurology, all of those things are, are extremely important. And it started in, in a large part around transcriptomics. There's a lot of extensions to that we've been able to do. I've talked a little bit here. Melissa, if you want to talk about you know, some of the extensions to what we can do with gene expression as well, that'd be great. The first thing that comes to my mind would be the five prime assay where we can actually look at immunology and VDJ sequences, CDR3s from individual cells. So with this assay, we can generate a bulk RNA-seq profile, and then we can enrich for transcripts of interest, specifically those VDJ sequences. So the, these really determine uh, the specificity of individual lymphocytes for targeting infection. Maybe they're responding to specific viruses. One really interesting case that I see a lot from researchers that I'm working with is tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So people don't know, but you can have cancer and there are actually T cells in your body that have identified that as a foreign invader and your body is fighting that cancer. But maybe there aren't, there aren't quite enough cells to actually affect uh, change within that system and be able to kill the cancer, fight the cancer strongly enough. So that's what a lot of people are doing now is working on immunotherapies where they're able to engineer T cells to actually fight this cancer more effectively or maybe grow up a lot of those T cells so that we're able to put more back into the patient to fight their own cancer with tools that their own body has developed. Now, these tumor infiltrating lymphocytes that end up being biologically present just naturally, like I said, they're generally pretty rare. Maybe they're, you take a tumor and you dissociate it, maybe you were seeing one to 10% of the cells in that sample are actually the cells that you're looking for. And with this type of technology, we can identify those individual cells. We can look at what CDR3s they're presenting. How are they actually targeting these tumor cells and being able to identify and fight them? And with the five prime assay, you can actually look at those VDJ sequences on a single cell basis. You can group clonotypes. You can look at things like somatic hypermutation within your B cell populations. We're getting some really interesting resolution that's really driving forward immunotherapies using this technology. Another one that I find really interesting as well is Visium, spatial gene expression, definitely the wave of the future right now. And we can definitely see tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in their position within tumors. How do you see people using spatial technologies, Neil? Yeah, this really is the next wave. And you already talked about that. With single cell, as I talked about, when we take this tissue and we dissociate it, and now all of the cells are just free floating in solution. And so while we've gained the ability to look at single cell resolution, what we've lost is the context for that. We don't know where those cells lived from within the tissue initially. And that can be just as important. And as an example, you were talking about tills and we could have a tumor 
which tumors are surrounded by normal tissue and there's this kind of interface, this boundary between the normal tissue and the tumor. And if those immune cells are unable to penetrate into the tumor, they're not really able to do their job. Whereas if those immune cells have managed to infiltrate the tumor, then you know they can actually start to attack it. And with a, an approach like Visium Spatial, we can look at those tills, we can look at those infiltrating T cells, and we can say, okay, are they making it into the tumor? Are they surrounding the tumor? And when we just do a single cell approach, we know the T cells exist, but we don't necessarily know where they were. And, and this could relate to prognosis, for example. And really what I think is really the wave is, is going to be this integrated approach. It's going to be taking the single cell information and then overlaying that onto the spatial context and saying, okay, here's this interesting cell type. Where does it reside within the tissue? And so these spatial approaches are providing a lot of information there that we didn't really know about before. Is this cell type localized just to one specific place? Is it spread throughout the tissue? Going back to stem cells, for example, is there a particular niche for those progenitor cells? Do they live throughout the tissue? All of these things can be really important to the underlying biology. So it's great that we can attack this from both sides of the problem now, which I'm really excited about. But it's not it's also not just about gene expression anymore. You already talked about in your previous life working with looking at regulatory elements and things like that. And I think that, you know, being able to do this at single cell is going to be important as well. So did you want to talk about some of, you know, the extensions beyond gene expression that that we're able to do? Absolutely. I mean, I already mentioned multiome. That assay allows you to simultaneously generate single cell attack seq data, so looking for open chromatin regions, and then also single cell gene expression data from the exact same cell. And I just can't emphasize that enough how powerful that is. Previously, researchers would take a sample, split it, and half would go to gene expression and half would go to single cell attack seq data. And then they were drawing these bioinformatic links between what regulatory elements and which cellular subpopulations might be impacting gene expression in that overall sample. And now that we can generate both data types from the exact same cells as input, there's no more inference. There's no more applying our human ways of thinking to try and make sense of these two individual data sets. And we have some really nice bioinformatics tools for being able to tie that together and visualize it, which I think just facilitates really easy data analysis and moving forward with the next project after you get that initial data. Everybody's looking for that pilot data for their grants, and hopefully we can facilitate that. Ataxic's really exciting, and I, I just can't wait to see if that will ever make it into a spatial context as well. I know that's something that people are really interested for the future. Yeah, it was amazing when we first saw some of the, the first multiome data, there were these kind of guilt by association pipelines that we had, but we were assuming a, a previous knowledge of if a region of chromatin's open, there's probably expression there. And as soon as the multiome product came out, we started seeing examples where that assumption is broken. And so therefore, the software that says it has to be open to be expressed, and if it's open, it will be expressed, we found out that assumption doesn't hold true in all cases. And so I really think the power of being able to look at both of these at the same time in the same cells really going to open up our understanding of regulation. There's primed for expression, and then there's actual expression. And then you even have repressors and how those are shutting down gene expression. We have resolution of those as well. 
Yeah, exactly. And I just think that this is what it's all about is getting that resolution and pulling out multiple data types per cell and not just looking at one thing, but being able to layer on extra layers of data. And that's what I think is going to be incredible. And you're right, when we can take these modalities and put them into spatial as well, I just, I can't wait for that day, but it's not here yet. But one of the things I've learned since joining 10X about two and a half years ago is that whatever I'm thinking about, R&D's already thought about it a year and a half ago before I came up with it. So I I just, I'm in awe of my colleagues and I, I can't wait to see what comes next. As field application scientists, we do tend to have our finger on the pulse of what people are doing with these technologies so we can bring it back to R&D and say, hey, people are really interested in doing this. And then we so often hear back, oh, we've been working on that for quite some time, but it's great to know there's interest and we want to know how much interest there is so we can really focus our attentions on bringing the next new technology to market. Along the track of multiomics, though, I did just want to bring in other types of multiomic outputs that we can get from these single cell assays. So things like cell surface protein or maybe CRISPR screens. What are some interesting things that you have seen researchers doing with these technologies? Yeah, this is one of my favorite things. Being able to, again, look at multiple modalities in in a single cell and Again, there's always been this assumption that if a gene is expressed, the protein should be expressed as well. And there was always this wonderful battle. I I lived on a floor when I was back in the genomics core where we had a bunch of genomics people literally on one half of the floor and proteomics on the other half of the floor. And whenever we met in the middle, it was like two gangs coming together. But I'm picturing West Side Story. Yeah, it was West Side Story all over again. (laughs) But honestly, it was a great kind of friendly rivalry, we know that there are many cases where there's a decoupling of these two things. And and in fact, some of the very first single cell experiments that I did, the researcher would bring us cells that had been sorted on the basis of some cell surface marker. And then when we'd go to look for that, the expression of that marker in the gene expression data, it wouldn't be there. And so they'd say, well, clearly the assay didn't work because I know that I know that it was expressing that protein. And now that we can add in what we at 10x call feature barcoding, where we can add antibodies to those cell surface markers and tag them with an oligo so that it also gets caught up in this reaction, we are actually seeing that there are definitely cases where the protein is so stable that the cells are not making more transcript. And so there is a decoupling of this. And again, we can really start to understand the regulation behind all of this. And so it really is fantastic. And then you talked about CRISPR as well. This is something that we're hearing in the news all the time about what this tool might be able to do, but really just as a screening tool, it allows us to interrupt the expression of certain genes and then see what the impact of this that is downstream. And we can look at the effect of multiple different genes at once because each cell, we knock down a different gene's expression and look at it in total. And it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. So with the CRISPR technology, what we're essentially doing is barcoding the guide RNAs that are going in. So we can have these enormous screens, like I was talking about with driving Drosophila gene expression, we could cover, theoretically, we're looking at thousands of different guide RNAs. We could be covering a really large fraction of the genome and doing a huge amount of perturbations and then seeing what different combinations of those might be doing to drive and impact gene expression downstream of that, not only pathways, but also some really interesting 
other types of regulatory interactions. It's a really exciting time to be in the field of biology, I think. Now, what about the case where people might not be interested in every gene that's being expressed? What if I wanted to look at just a subset of the genes within my cells? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's something when I was working in a core, it's something that we often got asked about is I don't want to know everything at this point because either I just I can't deal with it informatically, or I don't want to spend the budget sequencing a bunch of genes that I'm just currently not interested in, et cetera. And so there was always challenges to how you could deal with that. And you know, what we've come up with at 10X is really nice, is that you can Take a gene expression library that you've created for the whole transcriptome for every single gene, and then use a targeted strategy to only pull out a panel of genes that you're interested in. So if there's 20,000 genes in the human genome, but I'm only interested in 1,000 that are involved in an immune response, I can just pull those genes out, pull it out of the library and sequence it, and do all the informatics on that. But What's great about the approach that we've taken that I really quite like is that initial whole transcriptome library still exists. So you, you save on the sequencing, you save on the informatics overhead, but if it turns out that there was a subset of samples, for example, that were showing something kind of unique that you really wish you had expanded out the view of, that information is still there. You can go back and get that post hoc. And a lot of the decisions that have been made around our products really revolve around not having to make a decision up front that will prevent you from looking at things downstream. And this is true of our spatial as well, right? Maybe I'm only interested in a certain region of the tissue, but how would you do that in a spatial analysis? And you want to talk about a little bit about how we can look at different regions and, and in a spatial context? Yeah, absolutely. Not having to apply our puny human minds to the analysis of biology is a really important step in science, in my opinion. And so being able to look across an entire tissue and just have a wealth of data about what's going on within different structures, within different regions, I think is a really powerful thing. And having that added spatial context to add onto your gene expression and maybe even integrating these single cell profiles from the same exact tissue type, I think is a really powerful thing. I see researchers that are taking a portion of their tissue and analyzing it by spatial and then taking another portion of that tissue, dissociating into single cell suspension, and then merging those two data types for increased resolution within their Visium data. And then we start to see people that are applying our multiomics technologies and being able to add on maybe cell surface protein within their single cell suspension from that tissue, or maybe they're even doing multi-ome on that single cell suspension and being able to get out such interesting information and then apply that to the spatial context. And we're not having to set expectations for we only want a specific region for this analysis. We're going to be looking at the entire tissue section that you're capturing with this assay. So I think it is really powerful and really exciting. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I just I can never wait to see what's next in it. And it just seems to keep changing. And as a field application scientist like you, we just get to keep supporting these things, but it's just, there's more and more available, which I love to see. So. Yeah, and we, we're always seeing new technologies coming out, but we're also seeing 
brand new ways of utilizing these technologies, which I think is really exciting. And it's something we're going to get into a lot in this podcast is how do people access these technologies? What are they using it for? How are we pushing the envelope of what we understand about biology and gene expression? So I, I do want to shift gears here and talk a little bit about the ways that people can access these technologies. So Neil, you were running a core in a previous life. Were you guys a certified service provider at that time? Yeah, we were actually quite fortunate to be one of the first two, I think, uh, service, certified service providers in, in the world, actually, and definitely the first one in Canada. And it's a great program and it allowed us to really expand our reach and, and help as many customers as possible. But cores are a great way of first accessing a technology. They've got kind of everything you need. All you really need to bring to them is your sample and your biological question. And then you can access these wonderful technologies. But we also saw this as an entry point. One of the things I was actually quite proud of when I was running the core was that some customers became so enabled by this and expanded their their research so much by it that they then decided to purchase their own instrument and and do the work themselves they were accessing patient samples and this just gave them greater flexibility etc so you know a lot of these can be transitional as well but uh, you know having access to these cores is a great first entree but one of the things that i always appreciated about the 10x protocols is that they are relatively accessible to anybody. And if you've got a, an appropriate question, the protocols are very robust. They're easy to follow. And our jobs as field application scientists is to, to train the new users. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how that kind of process happens and how we get people up to speed. I love a support model that's really focused around customer success. If anybody's having an issue, it's both my job and my primary motivation in life, actually, to help people be successful. And so it's really wonderful to get to support people in that way. It, everything from experimental design and planning, feasibility studies, how am I going to set this up? Do I need replicates? What are batch effects and what are they about? Having technical expertise in that regard, you're going to be getting some of that from your core, but you can also reach out to a 10x field application scientist. And our team has been beefed up dramatically in the past few months. So we should definitely have somebody in every territory at this stage. And really just having that support model that is so focused on enabling people to be successful with these new technologies. You don't have to have a background in NGS. You don't have to have ever done a bead cleanup. Having some understanding of your model system is going to be very helpful. Knowing how your cells behave and how to make sure you have a happy, clean single cell suspension going in is going to be important. But we can help you even with that optimization, how to get your cells from a tissue into a happy single cell suspension. Am I flow sorting? Do I want to enrich for specific cellular subpopulations because I don't care about the rest, even upstream of 10x. We also have a wealth of resources, as Neil was saying. Not only are our protocols extremely detailed, but we have a whole lot of them. And if you're uh, ever on our support website, it's support.10xgenomics.com, you can start to mine some of that information for all of our resources. And if you're having trouble finding anything, just reach out to your local FAS. We're happy to help. 
That even goes to the extent of on-demand trainings, which will walk you through the biochemistry, sample prep, and the entire workflow protocol in a recorded PowerPoint scenario, and then how-to videos that are going to demonstrate hands-on how you go about performing these assays. But as Neil mentioned originally, having access to a core that is experienced and set up with these technologies is a great way to generate some pilot data. And that can be as simple as submitting your cells. Some cores have partial service models where you could go partway through the protocol. Maybe they'll take it from amplified cDNA and they'll prepare your libraries for you. A lot of cores also have bioinformatics support. And as far as data analysis goes, what are the ways people approaching that? Yeah, that's a great question and definitely a topic I know we're going to keep discussing as these episodes go along. But 10X has been very good about making software that is easily accessible, free to download and quite powerful for the end user. So, you know, some very nice pipelines for taking the data from the sequencer and, and generating files that become usable by the end user. We also have our loop browser, which is really one of my favorite tools for just quickly looking at the data, visualizing it, sharing it with your collaborators. Some of my favorite stories were when I was running the core where customers literally running around with their laptops with a loop browser view up going, look at this, just totally excited about what they had found and wanting to share that. We've made these really easy to access tools, but at the same time, we understand that the community is going to continue to make new ways to come up with and process this data and analyze it in ways that we hadn't even really necessarily anticipated ourselves. And so all of the files that we generate are are things that can be loaded into third-party tools and taken to a to another level as well. Maybe in tools that are not quite as user-friendly, I might say you have to get into some kind of coding. You might have to get into command line type of operations. What I've seen is that Loop Browser is really great for the end user that might not be an informaticist. And then, as you said, the cores tend to have access to either they themselves do a lot of the informatic analysis or there are a, a secondary core that can actually help with that, which is fantastic. And then what I've seen that's worked really is that as your local area starts to get into these things, these groups tend to form that will get together on a biweekly basis and just discuss informatics issues and analysis issues and best practices. And that was something that was done here in Toronto that was really fascinating to watch and grow, often led by the trainees and the postdocs and the graduate students really trying to figure out how to take these things further. So there really is a, a very engaged engaged community out there that helps with drawing that along. Absolutely. Outside of bioinformatics, I see a lot of people who are just starting to implement single cell technologies coming together and talking about their experiences and really leaning on the expertise of others. How do I prepare a really happy sample? What have you done? You know, what's your centrifugation speed? You don't want to spin so fast you're smashing the cells, but you want to spin fast enough that they're able to efficiently pellet. All of these things, people learn over time and they support each other and build community. It's a really powerful thing because that helps to inspire people on what's the next approach, what's the next subject that we want to try and break apart using these technologies. And that sound means it is time for Little Gems. Every episode, you'll have a Little Gem segment when we tell you about some news, fun facts, or an upcoming event. Our first Little Gem is about the Visium Spatial Solution for FFBE, now available to order. 
10x Genomics is excited to bring you Visium Spatial Biology Without Boundaries. Visium solutions enable true discovery with unbiased whole transcriptome mapping or targeted gene expression analysis of your tissue in spatial context, available for fresh frozen and FFPE samples. Check out our webpage at 10xgenomics.com forward slash spatial dash transcriptomics and stay tuned for more about Visium in future episodes. We also want to tell you about a cool new microsite, 10xgenomics.com forward slash science dash of dash tomorrow. It's a great way to get an overview of how researchers are making persistent progress in scientific breakthroughs of today. The links for our spatial transcriptomics and our science of tomorrow pages will be in the show notes. I want to just chat really briefly about what to expect from other future episodes. It's not always going to be just me and Neil here chatting with you, although we do really enjoy doing it. What we're planning to do is to bring you people from the field that are using these technologies. How have they accessed these technologies? Why did they access these technologies? And how has that empowered their research? Also, we're planning to talk with some of the experts who have worked to develop all of these multiomics technologies and, you know, really just pick their brains about what they've done. What do they feel this is serving a role in the field to better our understanding of biology? So I hope that you will tune in with us in the future because we have a lot of really exciting guests to be talking with, and we're going to bring you some really interesting discussions. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to our first episode. I've been here with Neil Weingarten. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Neil. Yeah, it's been great. And I look forward to some of the exciting episodes that we have coming. Melissa, it was it was my pleasure to be on the, the first inaugural podcast with you. And I look forward to participating in a few more. Absolutely. You can find more episodes of Cell Intel Podcast at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel. Subscribe if you want to be notified about new episodes, have the opportunity to give some feedback, or participate in polling questions or trivia contests for a chance to win a goodie and have your name, institution, and research area mentioned on the air. If you liked our podcast, your friends probably will too, so let them know about us. Thank you for listening and keep seeking out the possibilities. Mm -hmm.